By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents, because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Welcome to another episode of A Father's Instruction. My name is Jason Tackett. Today we will be delving into the subject of suffering. Why is there suffering and is there meaning to the suffering that you and I experience and that we see in the world? This is one of the greatest opposing questions that are faced by Christians and I hope it will be a blessing to you as we delve into the subject. As I said, by far the greatest argument that an atheist or an agnostic can mount against the biblical theist is not scientific or intellectual uh, in nature. It's rather existential. The question of suffering touches on the essential subject of their offense. And they will give us this seemingly insurmountable argument and a very effective argument that if God is all-powerful, then God could create a world in which suffering does not exist. And if God is all good, he would do so. Those are the powerful premises that they confront people with as we present to them the God of the Scriptures. And they conclude that God is either not all good or he's not all powerful. And therefore they conclude that the God of the Bible does not exist. And this line of reason, it's, it's admittedly powerful. And there have been notable people that have fallen prey to such arguments as this because it doesn't touch us on an intellectual level. I mean, intellectually, it's, it's not a sound argument. Um, the premises are not necessarily true. The conclusion doesn't necessarily follow from the premises. But the reason why it's such a powerful argument is that it touches us on an emotional level. And it creates this, this, uh, this existential crisis, if you would, as we consider the suffering that we experience and the suffering that we see around the world. In the Christian, as Christians, we can spout off a lot of intellectual arguments about why suffering exists, but it is meaningless to the person who is actually touched by the suffering. Uh, C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite books by C.S. Lewis, uh, one of the, my two favorites. Uh, is the problem of pain, and my other being his exposition on miracles. And I think both of those are very worthy of being read. But when he wrote his book, The Problem of Pain, he ended one of his chapters by saying that he would write a whole lot more about the subject of suffering, but he could not do so because he had a toothache. And 
that kind of summed up in a in a very great way the the emptiness of a lot of uh, of our intellectual answers about suffering when we're actually engulfed in suffering in any i mean even a even a headache sometimes will make me start despairing of life itself and and uh so that's the emotional power of such arguments because any experience of suffering uh, touches us on an emotional level and when we hear these arguments about god those also touch that emotional string in us uh, when touched by suffering intellectual truisms no matter how sound they are give little comfort to us we might ask the question a little differently than than the atheists and we, when worse touch with suffering the first word that comes out of our mouths is why why do good things happen to or why do, rather, why do bad things happen to good people? We hear that one a lot. But the question is always fundamentally the same. Why is there so much evil in the world? And, and where is God when this happens or that happens? And no matter how the question is framed or the, or the attack upon our faith is framed... Um, it's daunting when looking at it from our temporal viewpoint. Looking with temporal eyes at a world of suffering led Solomon and Ecclesiastes, for example, to, to, to conclude that everything was vain, everything was empty. The book of Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. It's written presumably in the days of Abraham, and it addresses partly the question of why the righteous suffer. And, and as readers, you and I, when we approach that book, we have the benefit of seeing the heavenly backdrop and the context to all that Job was experiencing. The, there was the spiritual warfare that Job was not aware of which created the backdrop to the suffering and created this meaning to suffering that he was going through. However, during the whole book, Job never got an answer to why he was suffering. The book unfolds with an intellectual conversation between Job and his friends about why the suffering was occurring. The friends were wrong because they said Job was suffering due to his sin. Job was ultimately wrong because he said that there was no cause for his suffering because he was righteous. There appeared at one point to be an even more reasonable friend named Elihu that starts speaking, and he gives other possible reasons for suffering. However, God even rebuked this reasonable friend for darkening counsel without knowledge. And when God finally spoke in the book of Job, he didn't give Job one answer to why he was suffering. Instead, he gave over a hundred straight questions that were all designed to show the greatness of God above all things. The answer to suffering, then, for the Christian, then, is found in the substance of our faith, the substance of who God is, that God is great and God is worthy of whatever it is that we must endure in this life. We see God as worthy of our worship and just in the way he deals with us. In fact, Job ended up saying, I repent in dust and ashes when he saw who, how great God was. And ultimately, Job was rewarded through the experience. So the Christian can land on this one point 
There is value in suffering. There is value even in engaging in this intellectual battle and uh, trying to answer the problem of suffering. But there is value in suffering in and of itself. But let's let's kind of start just just by before we get to the meaning and the value of the suffering that we experience. Let's let's try to approach this this Galian argument, this Goliath size argument. Uh, if God is all powerful, He could create a world without suffering. That's true. He can. I mean, that's what heaven is. If God is all good. He would have done so. Well, we can challenge that point. That's not necessarily true. And the conclusions that follow from the argument that God therefore does not exist, because he, when we present him as being all good and all powerful, uh, that contradicts the existence of suffering. Uh, so let, let us try real quick just to point out just some problems with this argument. The atheist argument that evil and suffering prove that God does not exist is built upon faulty premises. It assumes that there could be no other reason for an all-good and all-powerful God to allow for suffering in the universe that he created. The doctor, for instance, has a reason to cause suffering at points in time. If he must reset a broken leg that was set wrong, he's got to re-break it. And he's got to reset it. That causes pain. That causes suffering. But what he is doing in and of itself is good. And such, but such reasoning assumes that there is no higher wisdom or knowledge in God. What is missing from the argument, then, of the atheist is... Is if if God is all wise, then He may have a higher reason for the suffering to exist, and the objector by by dismissing that part from the argument uh, and not including that in the premises assumes to be all wise and all knowing to know that God could have no greater reason for allowing suffering in this life, but they but they also. As a second point, they make the fallacy of assuming the very thing that they want to deny. They judge God as evil. That's the unspoken part of this argument. If God is all good, he would have not allowed suffering to exist. So, But they assume the very thing they want to deny. They judge God as evil or wrong for allowing a world of suffering. They assume, therefore, that it is evil, it is morally wrong for God to do so, but where did they get the idea of evil? Only if God exists can there be a moral lawgiver, and only if God exists can there be a moral law in any real sense of the word, uh, and take away take away the the categories of good and evil, then they're argument is meaningless for morality would be arbitrary ultimately they only posit a real existence for evil as a matter of convenience to argue against the existence of a personal god to whom they are accountable is the main purpose that they they would like to have uh in their conclusion. However, the existence of evil, if allowed to remain as a real objective category, would convict them of doing that which is evil to others. They would have to admit that they have done evil themselves and have caused suffering in the lives of others. Therefore, they just as conveniently do away with the existence of evil once they've used it conveniently for their argument. And thirdly, they complicate the argument for themselves. If they, if they posit the existence of actual evil in their argument against the existence of God, then they must also posit the actual existence of good 
if God does not exist because of all the evil and suffering that exists, then how do they account for the existence of good things? Obviously, we experience good things in life, such as the taste of a good hamburger or, or the sublimity of watching a sunset. Or, and, and we can add things in, in the realm of beauty all day long. So while the Christian has to answer for the existence of evil and suffering, the atheist must answer the question of both good and evil. They tend not to take up this challenge and declare that there is no such thing as good and evil, and thus they destroy their own arguments. But they also ignore something else, the element of liberty, which the biblical worldview asserts. Ultimately, they deny, once you deny the existence of God, you deny the existence of any form of liberty, and that's why any real consistent atheist and uh, that it will adhere to material philosophy and and there is no freedom in that there is just the law of cause and effect and and there's no reason for us to 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 even hold their views to be valid at that point but but there is this existence of liberty and it does play a role in suffering uh, the existence of suffering. Um, one of the points I was making in another head that we were speaking of was the um, was the fact that uh, most of our fears are fears of other people. Uh, and that's true with suffering as well. Which causes greater suffering? Uh, the earthquake that levels the city or the evil of men afterwards. Far greater suffering was caused by the, by the choices that evil men make. Could there exist a world in which there is no possibility of suffering? Yes. We can envision such a world, but... Is the, is the existence of liberty is the existence of liberty an answer partly for why there is as much suffering in this world as there is? Uh, can you envision while well, we're not saying that this is the best of all possible worlds, with liberty is the existence of love uh, with can you envision a world without love? Well, if you have a world without liberty, without moral choices being made, then you also have a world without love and things of that nature. That there, there is moral liberty that we all, that we all know exists. Besides, it, it is not necessary to believe that God and His wisdom created the best of all possible worlds first. The greatest form of suffering is for the creature to be separated from its creator. So if God in all his wisdom chose to give the best of all possible worlds to those who through grace choose to seek him and to love him, then why is there a problem with accepting the idea that the present world is probationary in nature? The suffering that exists in this world due to the choices of men against this creator create this backdrop by which humanity may seek the greatest of all possible worlds to come by seeking God. That's the real rub for the atheists, though. They, they want the best of all possible worlds now without having to choose or love their creator or turn to him from their sin. But that's something best to talk about under another heading. But they also pretend that the God of the scriptures offers no answer to suffering. It's been, ex it's been said that um, the most expensive thing that God created in man was a will. 
For in it, not only God not only allowed for a world of suffering that touched mankind and all creation because of mankind, but it also allowed God himself to be touched with the reality of suffering. I, it's been surmised that the Bible itself as a whole is an answer to the problem of suffering and the problem of evil. It's a story of God bringing redemption to mankind and to all creation by himself entering into a world of suffering. And we find in the scriptures not a God of indifference, but a Savior that is acquainted with all points of our suffering. We can say that the question why do the why do innocent people suffer? Well, there are no innocent people. There's only been one innocent person to ever suffer, and that was God made flesh hanging upon a cross who knew no sin. Christ suffered once, but has through his suffering brought complete salvation from the reality of sin. As suffering entered the world through the, choi through the choice of man, Christ made a free choice. He said, not as I will, but as thou wilt, to suffer. And in the face of the, the, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, the reality of suffering loses all of its horrors and is replaced with a world of hope. But like I said, these are all intellectual and theological answers. And we could add many more and start poking holes in, in, in the stronghold of the argument from evil and suffering that is leveled to us or leveled by the atheists. And But often, like I said, they don't give much comfort to the people that are suffering. The suffering in and of itself is not without present meaning and value. We call suffering evil because it is. We call suffering evil because it's the product of evil. It's the product of immoral choices of man and the righteous judgment of God upon them. But it is not evil like an earthquake or a tidal wave. It's not evil in a moral sense. We live in a world where evil happens. There are two kinds of evil uh, that bring about suffering. There is natural evil. Those are the like diseases and natural disasters and things of that nature. But there is also volitional evil. And that's the product of moral choices and the consequences of those moral choices. And the greatest form of suffering always comes from the volitional evil above the natural evil. If mankind was morally perfect, then, then the suffering that happened from a tidal wave or an earthquake or a hurricane would be very short-lived. You would see this brotherly love and this kindness and, and, and this charity and all these things lifting one another up. But that's not the experience that we have when natural evil occurs. We see volitional evil rear its head and compound suffering. So by far the greatest form of suffering will always come from volitional evil. We have all been touched, though, with these kinds of evil and have faith as Christians that there will one day be an end to these things. Yet we suffer these things and we desire to find meaning in them. And that's what I really want to zero in on is finding meaning in suffering. To the atheist... 
the world is void of meaning. So to talk about meaning to them is is meaningless because there is no meaning, and therefore they get fail when they are talking about suffering. They can give no real answer to suffering, no matter how boisterous they get when leveling their arguments. This is the real weakness of their argument, is that when you ask them what suffering means, they can only say it means nothing. In fact, the world means nothing. There is no truth. There is no morality. There is no, there is no beauty. There is nothing. There is no meaning to it. Uh, everything is the product of chance and so on and so forth and and randomness and and there is no meaning because if they posit meaning then they have to deal again with where did that meaning come from but to the christian the world of suffering finds its greatest meaning in the expression of our faith faith of any sort may give a semblance of meaning but only faith in the truth of god can give us true meaning, or as, or as uh, um, Francis Schaeffer said, true truth. Uh, a, a book that's well worth reading, and not written by a Christian by any means, uh, was a book from Viktor Frankl, a psychologist and also a Jew that suffered uh, through the Holocaust in labor camps. And, and uh, he wrote a book called The Meaning of Life, I believe was the title of it. But he rightly point, pointed out in his experiences that he was giving about his time in the concentration camps that it was faith and a sense of purpose and meaning that enabled people to survive these death camps that the Nazis brought them through. Faith gives meaning to people enduring suffering. And to give and to try to destroy that faith, which callously is what is being done when people level arguments about if God is all good and if God is all powerful, is to take away from them the one or attempt to take away from them the one real support that gives what they're going through value. The 11th chapter of Hebrews uh, is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible concerning the activity of faith. That chapter deals with how faith acts in the reality in which we live, how it presses us forward despite the opposition of suffering. To the believer, the faith of Christ is an active element. Read through that chapter when you get a chance. You'll see, by faith, Enoch offered. By faith, Abraham went out and obeyed. By faith, Sarah received strength. By faith, Abraham offered Isaac. By faith, Jacob worshipped, leaning on a staff. By faith, the parents of Moses hid the baby because they feared not the commandment of the king. And the end of the chapter speaks of people doing great acts of faith and enduring great intense suffering because there was something greater for them. Faith without works is not real faith, and faith occurs in this world of suffering. Faith acts in a reality of pain. There is no other way that it can be expressed. In reciting the great men of faith and, and women of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, the person of Moses grabbed my attention. Moses was born a Hebrew, born at a time when Hebrew baby boys were being exterminated. He was born to godly parents who kept him alive despite the command to kill him. However, when he could no longer be hid, they committed him to the Nile where Pharaoh's daughter discovered him and she took him 
and raised him as her own child. He grew up in Egypt, was learned with all the wisdom of Egypt. He could have had all the treasures of Egypt and enjoyed all of its pleasures. Some even believe he could have been the next king, Pharaoh, if he had so desired. And the text itself leaves that possibility open. I can't say one thing, yay or nay, about that. Nevertheless, our, that text tells us that by faith, when Moses came to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he refused Egypt. And this was a decision that was said to have been done by faith. That means that he heard the word of God and believed it and acted on it. It was not presumption. Moses refused all the possibilities of Egypt. He did it when he was come of years, when he was of age. He refused Egypt because he believed God about the promises of Israel. And he embraced those promises. And at that time, when he was ready to rule in Egypt in some way, shape, or form, he refused it and chose something else. He chose suffering. And it's not the point of our time together today for me to rehearse the story of Moses. The point I want to dwell on here is concerning his reasons. Moses is a man that chose to suffer. Instead of having those pleasurable and comfortable things in Egypt, he found meaning in suffering. Therefore, I... I would I'm, I get flabbergasted when I read this because why would someone choose to suffer? And the answer, of course, is they saw meaning and value in it. The text explains why Moses did these things. As a challenge to us to choose a life of suffering as well. The pattern of Moses is seen more fully in Christ as a challenge for us to follow in those steps. Hebrews chapter 13 goes on and says, Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. So let us talk about this choice that lies before us. One of the greatest problems with Christianity today is that we are more interested in escaping the cross than embracing and carrying the cross. We refuse suffering and therefore there are no great acts of faith that are attributed to this generation. Christ told us that we have a cross to bear and that if we would come after him, we must take up our cross. We must deny ourselves and follow him. And we only gain our life by losing it. And these are the symbols of Christianity. A yoke, a cross, a, uh, a burden to bear, and, and things of that nature. A cup to drink. The history of Christianity is this glorious story of suffering. After the pattern of our Lord. And it is suffering, this suffering, this true Christianity that turned the world upside down. The apostles, for instance, gladly suffered, and therefore thousands were converted. The early Christian martyrs gladly faced the lions and, and gladly were burned at the stake. And because of that, the world was changed by them. Moreover, through their, moder their, their, their I can't talk through their martyrdom, the world saw the beauty of the faith of Christ. Christianity is a story of enduring suffering and not escaping it, and enduring it not not sadly or as if or as 
Peter said, as though some strange thing happened to us, but enduring it with joy, enduring it for the sake of a greater end, and not necessarily a futuristic end, but one that was valuable and meaningful now in this life. The Christian does not deny the existence of suffering, whereas the atheist would say that there is no meaning in suffering. Uh, maybe Eastern mysticism would deny suffering. A Christian scientist maybe would say suffering doesn't exist and, and, uh, and things of that nature. The Buddhist would deny the existence of suffering, but the Christian doesn't do that. The, the Christian admits what what we all already experience and know there is a world of suffering that we're in. So a Christian does not deny the existence of suffering. The Christian embraces suffering by the expression of their faith and proclaims that there is a greater meaning to it, as well as a belief that one day it will all be set right. This stands in great contrast to the empty atheism which at best is a defiant form of defeatism that says there is no meaning and no greater purpose. The Christian believes there is present meaning for the things that they're going through, and it is for that reason they take courage and take up their cross and follow Christ. In doing so, Christianity has become a force in the world for relieving suffering of many in this world. We could think of all the great Christian organizations devoted to, to relieving suffering that are experienced by others in this world. Salvation Army or the Red Cross or things of that nature. So, as we talk about this choice, finding meaning, finding value in suffering, what is the nature of suffering itself? Now, I want to I want to kind of get very particular about some definitions here. Suffering is different than pain, and I, I'm bringing this out because this is the nature of the choice. Both pain and suffering entered the world through sin. But we often intertwine the two and believe that they are the same. Pain is something that happens to someone. An injury of various natures. There's physical pain. There's psychological pain. There's emotional pain. There's spiritual pain. Pain is an event that happens or continues to happen to a person or to a group of people. Suffering is not an event that happens to a person. It's something that a person or group of people choose to do with their pain. To suffer means to bear what is painful or to endure, to sink under a weight. This, the synonyms of suffering, especially those in the scripture, are words like patience and endurance. They all mean the same thing. And it's got to be puzzling, no doubt, at this point, to someone to hear that suffering is, is a choice. Who would ever choose suffering? An example of this Maybe a church person choosing suffering by refusing to take pain medication. A more, a more exact example may be found in the world of literature or storytelling. Every great story has an element of suffering. We call it the conflict. And the hero at that point of the story decides to suffer through something or to endure something for the sake of gaining something else that was of value. The warrior chooses suffering over cowardice. 
The bodybuilder chooses suffering or enduring the pain of exercise in order to gain physical fitness. Sometimes we hear about the cancer patient choosing to suffer in order to maintain their consciousness or wits. They do this because they desire not to be in this comatose state when their loved ones are by their side. I experienced that myself when my grandmother died. How she gave great testimony, even through her great pain, to try to encourage us in the Lord in the, in the days and hours before her death. Suffering is what a person or group of people decide to do with their pain. Suffering is a result of freedom, and it's an expression of freedom or liberty. It, it, as mentioned earlier, we often hear the atheists object to the existence of God because of the existence of suffering. They do this not realizing suffering carries with it certain dignity. Suffering proves the freedom and liberty and in turn proves the existence of God. Suffering proves human dignity. It doesn't disparage it. It is one that suffers. The one that suffers is free to do so. Suffering teaches us that humanity has worth. As well, pain is a great thing, too. Uh, I've heard terrible stories about people who were unable to feel pain and how awful that was. And, and it's true. Pain is a good thing. Suffering is a great thing because it creates opportunities. Because we live in a world of suffering, we live in a world where accomplishments can be made. Without suffering, words like love, forgiveness, honor, courage have no real meaning. There would be no examples of great lovers or great heroes outside of a, the possibility of suffering. It's worth it to endure suffering for the right things. That is why James told us we count them happy who suffer in James 5.11. Suffering into the world for the free choice of one man. Moreover, our text tells us that suffering is something that we can yet choose. So what do I mean by this? Every time a painful event occurs... A decision is to be made by the one who sustains the injury. What am I going to do with my pain? Am I going to try to escape it? Or am I going to choose to patiently endure it? The painful event always puts that fork in the road. Escape or suffering? The choice to escape pain takes many forms in our culture. Drugs, sensual relationships, entertainment. I like what Pascal said. If we were truly happy, the less entertained and diversions, entertainment and diversions we had, the more happy we would be. The fact that we have you know, this entertainment and diversion tells us about our unhappiness. Um, and that's just a paraphrase of Pascal, but... But entertainment, which is a diversion, work, play, while as escape is not always a bad thing. For instance, if I have a headache, I, it's not a bad thing necessarily for me to escape it by taking an aspirin. But, but it's a terrible thing if there is never a choice in a person's life to suffer. This is the essence of the choice. Some base the whole of their happiness on avoiding or escaping pain. They are constantly seeking a way to divert themselves from it and therefore never live for any higher purpose. But they're never happy with their life of diversion. They're never happy in it. 
our culture wants to be entertained everywhere too it seems like it wants to get something to distract us from from really the business that we're in of living for Christ we are entertained at home we're entertained at church we are entertained at work true joy can only come when we endure for a higher purpose and that's what our text leads us to we have here in this text three dialectics Moses chose to suffer because he saw a greater value in something else in Hebrews 11:25 he chose people above pleasure in verse 26 he chose a testimony above treasures and then in verse 27 he chose the side of god over the strength of the king in each of these dialectics a choice is presented will one suffer for the greater principle or will they choose to escape for the baser principle the pleasures of sin for a season are an escape. The treasures of Egypt are an escape. The fear of the king is an escape, or compliance with the king, rather, is an escape. Just going along. The problem in this world is that people see no value to making those choices for the higher principle. And unfortunately, the church is the same, as I was saying earlier. They see no value in suffering. There is now no place for the cross in the church where every message is a therapeutic message and every promise seems to be for self-centered prosperity. As has been said by many, we want a Christianity without a cross, a gospel without sin, preaching without guilt or conviction. The average Christian sinks into the various forms of escape that are seen in these three dialectics in Hebrews 11. They'll choose sin, they'll choose diversion, they'll choose compliance with the present evil world. We see no value in enduring pain for standing up with people, for living for Christ, and for seeking God. We are convinced, along with the world, that suffering is a bad thing to be avoided at all costs. And therefore we refuse to suffer because we see no present or eternal value in it. Unlike Job, we do not see suffering as a means by which we may come forth as gold, pure, truer, and better suited for the service of our Lord. Therefore, when pain comes, we choose to escape. The ethics of the unbelieving world is to escape suffering. The moral philosophy of the world leaves little room for faith, much less love and bravery and honor. Why should we be willing to choose the suffering? Why should we be willing to choose because, it's, because there is something more valuable than our personal ease or comfort. And until we grasp this, we will never carry a cross that Christ has asked us to carry. Moses saw this value first. He saw that people are greater than pleasure. Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He saw the best of this world. He saw what it had to offer. He weighed it against the value of God's people. And he found the latter to be the greater weight. Here's the fork in the road. The one road is the road of escape, and the other road is the road of suffering. The way of suffering is connected with a decision to stand up with and for others. The way of escape is to live a life of sinful pleasure for yourself. The easiest thing in the world 
for any individual to do is to live a life of sin and pleasure of sin. It pulls on the most selfish strings of our nature. However, only one of these choices can ever have lasting benefits. No one's ever lived for the pleasures of their sin and been happy in the end. Matthew Henry stated that sinful pleasure must end in repentance or ruin, and it always does. It is only a seasonal thing before it leaves you empty. Spending yourself for the care of others, however, has a lasting value. See, sin is, at its core is self-centered and self-absorbed. To escape into the pleasures of sin is to say that you do not care about anyone other than yourself. And in fact, it's very odd. It was pointed out by a, by a Paul Washer uh, that, uh, that the hero in the movies are, is one that lives in these moral contradictions where they don't want to care for their family, they don't want to care for their kids, but all of a sudden they, uh, they're willing to do this great feat. Uh, it doesn't really work out that way. Sin at its core is self-centered and self-absorbed. To escape into the pleasures of sin is to say you don't care about anyone other than yourself. Sinful pleasure pushes everyone underneath the pursuer of the pleasure. Uh, you can watch the person addicted to drugs or alcohol, the drunkard, and the choices that they meet, the people that they hurt that are close to them. The sexually immoral person will do the same, making their decisions, not caring who is hurt by those by, by those decisions. Sin at its core is selfish. Sin despises suffering and chooses selfishness. That is precisely why sin will never lead to a life of fulfillment. Um, as my former pastor, Wiley Cameron, once said, you have never found a satisfied sinner. Um, they'll always need one more of whatever it is that they're pursuing. Why? This is be so because those who seek pleasures of this life have put themselves in the way they feel above all else. But self was never meant to be the center. We live in a selfish, pleasure-centered culture, and we're the most depressed culture there ever was. And we're all about trying to escape that depression by more selfish choices. We all seem to suffer from one form of depression or anxiety which furnishes us with an excuse to seek other means of escape. The pleasures of sin are only for a season, a small amount of time, and the end of that mirth, according to the proverb, is heaviness. Many have lived for pleasure only to weep at last when they've wasted all in riotous living. No man ever devoted their life to pleasure that did not repent in the end. Oscar Wilde, for instance, with his hedonism and, and atheism and debauchery that he lived in, wept at last on his deathbed, desiring a priest, seeking remission. Jacob Marley rightly screamed at Scrooge, mankind should have been our business. Suffering is often escaped because we have come to believe that the greatest value and esteem belongs to us and not to others. But we need a cause greater than ourself. If we are ever to be fulfilled... We need a cause greater than us. That's why Paul said, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, 3 through 5. We need to again see the worthiness of others before we ever 
take up before we can ever take up a cross. General Booth, who started the Salvation Army on his deathbed, was asked to send a Christmas a Christmas message to all the Salvation Army chapters uh, through telegram, and he chose to send just one word. Others. Christ is the great example here. It was the mind of Christ to esteem others greater than himself. He emptied himself. He chose not the way of escape, but he chose to endure the cross for the joy that was set before him. And that joy included us and our salvation, included him being our Redeemer. He did not escape, but embraced suffering when he cried, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And we're supposed to follow that. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The choice of suffering for the sake of others ultimately brought joy to Christ and it will ultimately bring joy to us if we embrace it as he did. Centuries of faulty ethical philosophy have convinced our culture that avoiding pain and pursuing pleasure are the ultimate good for the individual and for the collective. True joy, though, comes from suffering for the right reasons and for the greater principle. The psalmist said, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Psalm 126. Consider the levels at which Christ gave himself. He gave himself for you, the individual. He gave himself for the church, the group. He gave himself for the world. That's all. No matter what level of relationship we are considering, the choice to suffer for those was given by our great example, Jesus Christ. Love suffereth all things, says the says the scripture, 1 Corinthians 13. It endures all things. The reason why many relationships fail is that people do not see the value of of setting aside their desires for the other. We're givers and not takers, as S.M. Davis taught. Um, if we live to fulfill our own lust, uh, then we will always push others under us. Moses saw the value of other people more than the value of his own lust. A marriage will fail if the lust of one becomes greater than the needs of the other. Love causes all, as it costs our Savior, to give ourselves for others. The proverb says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. In the church, we bear one another's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ. To the world, we become all things to all men that we might win some. Every human relationship that we engage in ask us to deny ourselves and give of ourselves to others. The greatest value and fulfillment is in others and not self. The cross will never be taken up until we see that truth. But when we do, we will choose to suffer for the good of others. Moses continued, he chose to suffer because he esteemed the testimony of Christ as being greater than the treasures of Egypt. We may use the term integrity as well as the term testimony. It is often integrity that's the first thing to be jettisoned when we want to escape our suffering. The wife of Job, for instance, complained that Job maintained his integrity and told him that he should curse God and die. To live for that which is true and that which is good is always greater than to do the contrary. Our text states that Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures. That gets to the 
us to the next level of our decision. When the painful events occur and the fork of the road is seen, we have to decide, will we honor Christ, which is the decision to suffer, or will we choose the way of escape? Moses could have chose to maintain the status quo, to keep the world and its riches. He was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. The treasures here represent to us the ease and the comforts of the world. We must remember that the value that Moses saw in Israel was the value of the promises made to Abraham. That's why it's said in the text, he esteemed the reproach of Christ. Moses considered that reproach itself to be his riches. Christ says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The truth of the or promise of Christ is of greater value. Do we value the person of Christ or do we value our own ease and comfort? And that choice is going to become very real to Christians in our country in the coming days. Is there a higher truth for us to hold to that does not have a for sale sign on it if the right price were offered? We remember the stony ground here in the parable of the sower, the four different grounds. The seed that fell on the stony ground were the ones that embraced the gospel as long as it was easy. But when affliction and persecution came, they were offended and they immediately went away. Stop following. They chose escape because they saw Christ to have no value over their own ease. The disciples saw the value of Christ and therefore decided to honor him. And they departed from the council after being whipped, rejoicing in Acts chapter 5 verse 41 that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Thus will each Christian do, who see the reward of Christ and the pleasure of Christ more important than the praise of men. To stand for Christ in this world is going to, is going to require us to endure for Him, to leave our comfort for Him, to take up a cross of his testimony. And we need to see that as our treasure. Our treasure is Christ. And it's not worth the world. We need to see this again. Christ living and enduring the contradiction of sinners against himself for us. We need to see him bleeding and dying for our sin. That we may have heaven he chose to suffer, and shall we choose escape? Demas forsook Paul because he loved the present world. Many stopped following Christ when his words became too hard in John 6. Christ asked his disciples, will you go too? There is a recompense, a crown, something far greater. And then one last dialectic. Moses chose to suffer because he saw the sight of God as being greater than the strength of the king. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured or suffered as seeing him who is invisible. Moses suffered and endured because he saw something greater than this temporal world and its earthly rule, and its kings, and its dominions. He was not afraid, as the Hebrew boys, and as Daniel that was before him. He was not afraid of Pharaoh and his armies. He was not afraid of men. When the painful event comes, we are left with a decision. Will we choose the fear of men, which is the way of escape? Or will we look to God, which is not seen, and choose to suffer for him? God is 
the greater value. The world and its authority are, are intimidating. And the easiest thing to do for us to escape is just simply to comply with everything they tell us to do. The earthly kings have told, always told Christians, don't preach the gospel. The apostles of old told us that we ought to obey God, though, rather than man. This is the way of suffering and is only possible by walking in faith and not by sight. We've never seen God with our naked eyes. We've never seen heaven. But I know he's there and that he's greater than all. He's the true authority and I must obey him. There's a deep, there is a deeper and more intrinsically value present, valuable presence that is here. And it's not the government. It's God. We need to seek that greater reality. We choose escape because we see nothing greater than the authority of men. We escape by our compliance to worldly authority because it's too hard to swim against the tide. Nevertheless, when we see God the way he is, we can take up our cross. In in conclusion, I guess, it, it's inevitable that these painful events will occur. As long as we live in the present evil world, they're going to come. The enemy of our souls will always be offering a way of escape. That way may come in many forms. However, we need to maintain our integrity. What will we do with our pain? That's a question of value. Do we value ourselves and our own needs or do we value the needs of others? Do we value the testimony of Jesus Christ or is our treasure somewhere else? Do we value the reality and authority of God more than all? If so, there arises meaning and value to all manner of suffering that we can encounter in this life. As such, we cannot only draw comfort in them, but also our suffering becomes a conduit of comfort for others. If we value ourselves only, we'll always seek that way of escape. Nevertheless, if we value the higher principles more, then we will choose rather to suffer. We have been called to suffer. We have been called to endure hardness. If we suffer for Christ, we shall also reign with him. There is a great promise. I hope that in some small way, as we went through these points, that you saw value in the things of Christ and the greatness of our God that there are things that are worth suffering for and I hope in some way they've encouraged you in Christ until next time Lord bless